0: some of you would rather be studying the Bible than talking about it, but we have engaged in a little study called Bibliology 101 because I would not have ye be ignorant brethren, as the Apostle Paul said. Uh, we live in the Bible Belt, and so I think we have a tendency to maybe take the Bible for granted, and I just want you to kind of be aware of the rich heritage that is behind that English Bible that you hold in your hand there so that you have a greater appreciation for it and a greater confidence in in it, that what you hold there in your hand is indeed the word of uh, God. So we have uh, started this little study, and today we want to move into a, oh, maybe a, a fifth uh, link in the chain, if you will, from revelation, inspiration, uh, transmission, canonicity to the issue of English Bible translations. Uh, uh We have the Bible in the language that we speak and read and understand. That's an important link in the chain from God to us. And so we want to talk about that a little bit this morning. Just for curiosity, show me a a hand. um, And don't be uh, embarrassed on this. There's no right or wrong answer. But uh, King James, hold your hand up if you're all right. New King James. All right. How about uh, NIV? uh, New American Standard. ESV. H-C-S-B. You don't even know what that is. Uh, other. Oh, do we have over here? Just other. Okay. Well, those are the major ones, right? And some of the more, maybe more popular um, uh, ones. But literally, you may not know this, there are hundreds of English Bible translations. And you may wonder, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And And why can't we just all agree on the best one and just stick with that and read that and everybody have that? Uh, Why do we have so many English Bible translations and which one is the best? Um, I get questions about that periodically. Somebody will say, hey, I'm getting a new Bible or I'm getting my 12 year old a new Bible. What do you recommend? And so uh, I think it's good for us to talk about that. It is kind of a daunting task when you go online and start shopping for Bibles, right? There's so many different uh, translations. So I couldn't really do this series on the Bible without talking at least one Sunday about the English Bible. Where did our English Bible come from? Why do we have so many different translations? I want to answer that question this morning in three ways, and this will kind of be our outline, just working through some material that I want to familiarize you with if you aren't already. First of all, just to sort of survey the, the history a little bit, um, there have been two major periods of English Bible translation. Um, two, um, two periods, roughly uh, 100 years each. Uh, in the 16th century and then in the, in the 20th century. And if you, if you think about it, um, that corresponds to, to two pretty significant uh, technological advances. Can you think of what that might be? Number one would be the printing press. Number two would be the computer. So the PP and the PC uh, have had a huge impact on, on all of that. But just backing up and getting a running start at this, we, we kind of have to go back to um, Wycliffe. The Wycliffe Bible really broke the ice, if you will, and that came along in the, in the 14th century. You've probably heard of this guy. He, this really was the first complete Bible in the English language. Um, John Wycliffe, his teaching, his translation work, he uh, became known as the morning star of the Reformation. So he, he really was the, the, the foundation for what came in the next uh, two and three hundred years. He, his followers, the Lollards, an order of itinerant preachers, went around all over the countryside reading and preaching an English Bible. And you have to remember that up until this time, everything in the church was in Latin. Only trouble is, only the clergy knew Latin. The common people didn't. And so you had this, this movement of of English speaking preachers and and Wycliffe uh, was a part of that and um, made the effort to put the Bible into English. So he took the Latin Bible and translated it into English and uh, completed the New Testament in his lifetime. Around 1382, the Old Testament wasn't completed until after uh, his death in 1388. Uh, It was wasn't printed. It was still handwritten. But it was the first complete translation of the Bible into English, and then, of course, in the providence of God, uh, the Gutenberg press was invented, 1440s, and the Gutenberg Bible, uh, a Latin Bible, of 1455, I think, and uh, that really set the stage then uh, for what was to come in the next in the next 100 or so years. Uh, William Tyndale was born 1492. He produced the first printed English New Testament in 1526, although he had to leave England to do it. Uh, th- these works were not church or state uh, sanctioned. In fact, uh, he became embroiled in a dispute. The charge was made that Englishmen were better without God's law than without the Pope's. To which he replied with his now famous quote, I defy the pope and all his laws. If God spares my life, ere not many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scriptures than thou dost. And uh, that was because he was going to put the language, he would put the Bible in the language of the common people. So he left England for the continent, completed the translation, had it printed in 1526, and then it was smuggled in to England. Uh, the bishop uh, of London at that time actually purchased copies so he could burn them. That was the attitude. We don't want anything to do with this. So they were burning the Bibles as they were smuggled in. Uh, Sir Thomas More issued a dialogue in which he attacked Tyndale's version as belonging to the same pestilent sect as Martin Luther's translation, German translation. Nevertheless, the, the first English version of the Pentateuch, Jonah, and the New Testament was published and began circulating in England, and um, and it was translated from the Hebrew and Greek. It was the first English Bible translated from the original languages. Uh, it was also apparently quite idiomatic. Genesis three four, Tush, ye shall not die. Is what Satan said. Genesis thirty nine nine two. the Lord was with Joseph and he was a lucky fellow. That's that's one way to say it. He was put to death uh, October 6, 1536. And his last words were Lord open the king of England's eyes. But his work essentially laid the foundation <coughs> for all successive English versions. <coughs> then the first complete. Uh complete printed English Bible was the Coverdale Bible, 1535. Miles Coverdale did that work in York. And for the first time, the Apocrypha was also uh, separated out in a separate category, appended to the end rather than a part of the text as it had been up until that point. It's also uh, to Coverdale's translation that we owe such memorable phrases as Psalm 23, 4, the valley of the shadow of death and thou anointest my head with oil. Um, then came the great Bible, 1539, which would end up being the first authorized English Bible. And it received its name from its size, 15 by 10. Huge Bible. Great pulpit Bible. And that led to the Geneva Bible. You say, how did we get an English Bible from Geneva, Switzerland? Persecution. Uh, English Protestants were being persecuted and killed by Bloody Mary, Queen of England. And so they fled to Geneva and from there produced this Bible. And it was the first English Bible with marginal notes, maps, chapter summaries, tables, verse numbers. I mean, we can have a wanna now thanks to the Geneva Bible. It also became known as. The breeches Bible, Genesis three seven. They sewed fig tree leaves together and made themselves breeches. <laughs> and new editions of that text were produced annually for over five decades. So this was a this was a hit. This was a very uh, prominent English translation. It would be the Bible of William Shakespeare, John Bunyan, the Puritans, the Pilgrims. And uh, King James himself. But it was never approved. It was never sanctioned, authorized by the church or the state. And so the Archbishop of Canterbury initiated the Bishop's Bible. So named because uh, it was translated by bishops. And it became the second authorized English version after the great Bible. And with that, then, the stage was set religiously, uh, politically, politically. For the King James uh, Version 1611. When King James the sixth of Scotland became King James I of England, he convened a conference of clergymen and commissioned them, 47 to 50 men, to publish a revision, an English translation, which would embody the best of all the previous versions but also be read both in the public services of the church and in homes, in private. And it worked. The, it was a successful enterprise. The grandeur of its translation, uh, really took off. People loved it. It became popular. And of course, uh, the King James Version has reigned supreme for 400 years. You see the title page there, the Holy Bible containing the Old Testament and the New, newly translated out of the original tongues and with former translations diligently compared and revised by His Majesty's special command, approved to be read in churches, imprinted at London by Robert Baker, printer to the King, etc., Anno Domini, 1611. Some little known facts about it. It has been called the authorized version That is a misnomer. It never actually was authorized. That credential hangs purely on the printer's claim on the title page approved to be read in churches. Three editions of the King James appeared within its first year of publication, different sizes of volumes. And as early editions came out, there were many different readings, misspellings, some quite humorous in 1631. For example, the word not was omitted from the Seventh Commandment. Remember that one? Thou shalt commit adultery. Game changer. Well, that was immediately recalled, as you can imagine. But that became known as the Wicked Bible. The 1717 edition printed at Oxford was called the Vinegar Bible because of the chapter heading in Luke 20, which contains the parable of the vinegar. No, the vineyard. Missed about that much. And the night in the 1795 edition became known as the murderer's Bible because it misspelled filled in Mark 727. Let the children be killed first. <laughs> One one pesky little letter. So I guess if you know somebody who's King James only, you might ask him, which one? Right? Which one? It's undergone a number of revisions over the years. And actually, the King James Version that we know today comes from a comprehensive revision in 1769 by Dr. Benjamin Blaney of Oxford. And, of course, you know. While all that was going on in the Protestant world, the similar thing was going on in the Catholic world. They eventually realized, OK, we've got to put the Bible into English. And so they began translating Bibles into English as well. The Reims Dewey version, 1589 and, and and so on. But that's kind of the history from Wycliffe or from Tyndale uh, to King James. You say, well, 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 then what happened? Well, thanks to advances in scholarship, uh, thanks to an accumulation of earlier and better manuscript materials, uh, thanks in part to archaeological discoveries, thanks in part to changes in English culture and language, there began then in the mid-1800s a movement to publish an official revision of the King James Bible. And it happened, 1881. It's known as the English Revised Version the ERV. anybody ever read that? The ERV, or it's also known as the RV Revised Version. Um, it was a dud, not real popular. Uh, in fact, uh, I read somewhere it's 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 known as the most hated Bible of all time, uh, because I think what happened is in the pursuit of accuracy, a very literal or or wooden translation was produced that lost much of the beauty and elegance that people had grown accustomed to uh, with the King James. But but that version became then the catalyst and sort of the launch pad for a new era of English translations. What we can now look back on uh, as really the most prolific uh, period ever of English Bibles in the 20th, really the second half of the. 20th century, where that revised version led to the American Standard Version, led to the revised Standard Version, led to the, Ameri- the New American Standard Bible, led to the New English Bible, to the New International Version, to the New King James, to the New Revised Standard Version, to the Holman Christian Standard Version, to the English Standard Version, and on and on it, 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 it goes, apparently with no uh, end in sight. But why is that? Well, um, I think it's because no single translation can ever do justice to the original languages. Uh, Something is lost always in translation. I think that's why we have so many translations, because no one of them is perfect. Every translation uh, in every translation that's ever been made into English, there's always been something uh, found wanting, and that's why new translations continue to be made. Uh, plus the fact that the English language continues to morph and change. And the spirit of the Reformation that that started English translations in the first place, you know, put the Bible in the language of the common people, kind of, I think, drives uh, this continued effort toward newer and newer translations. It's interesting thinking through all of that. Maybe there's a little insight into church history. You know, somebody always has to be first, right? Somebody always has to break the ice, whether it's translation work, whether it's taking the gospel to a new place. What For all progress, for, 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 for every advance of the gospel, for every spread of Christianity, you know, somebody has to be the person, the the point of the arrow that gets that thing started. and And usually... That person had you know it's a suicidal mission right they die or it ends in defeat, but it becomes the catalyst um, for and lays the foundation for things to come and more uh, to come behind that uh, So I think as Christians today you know we got to realize that we need to be thankful for the trailblazers, the people that have done so much of the hard work before us but also not be afraid to be that ourselves and realize that yeah you know you What you do may may appear to be in vain, but maybe not. Maybe it's just the starting point of a whole another wave. I think of the uh, storming of the beaches, you know, of Normandy, that first wave. Yeah, they all got mowed down. But the second wave, you start to penetrate. And by the third, fourth wave, you have a beachhead established. And that's kind of how it is with the progress um, of Christianity. But we have the English translations that we have because of those two, those two. Periods in which uh, conditions were just right politically, uh, spiritually, religiously, economically, ecclesiastically, and even technologically uh, to generate the interest, the demand, the opportunity. Here's a second way to maybe answer the question, why do we have so many English translations? Because we have, at least in the 20th century, two different methods or philosophies of translation. Some have said that in the 16th century, the predominant concern in Bible translation was elegance. And the primary concern in the 20th century has been accuracy. If that's true, then we've really come through three phases, three eras of Bible translation. And we're now in the third one. We went from the age of elegance, 16 and 1700s, to the age of accuracy, 18 and 1900s. And now we are in the age of readability, where the issue is is having a translation that everyone can can read. It's it's very understandable. Um, in other words, up until up until really, I guess 1970 or so, English translations were almost exclusively formal equivalents, where the idea is, where the goal was to be to represent the original language as closely as possible in a word for word um, translation. Okay. since that time, we there's been a new school of thought where the focus is more on a dynamic equivalence. And the goal is not so much a word for word correspondence as a thought for thought or a phrase for phrase correspondence. And this graphic kind of shows where the modern translations fit. Uh, on that spectrum, and you can see kind of where your translation is at on that. The NIV shows to be right in the middle, but it's admittedly a dynamic equivalence translation. Here's another view of it. So you can kind of see where the different translations fall on that uh, on that continuum. Formal equivalence translations are more literal. Dynamic equivalence are, are more free. And as you keep moving on that spectrum, then it, it becomes a paraphrase. And so that's kind of how you go from a, maybe in a, a direct interlinear where you're just translating word for word to uh, paraphrases like uh, God's word or the message or the living Bible. You say, what's the difference? What difference does it make? Well, here's an illustration. You take this French phrase. Con les poules ont des or however you say it. That would be the original language. All right. A formal equivalence word for word translation would be when hens have teeth or when the chickens have the teeth. Okay. well, we don't we don't use that phrase in English. Anybody use that phrase lately? No. So a dynamic equivalence would be to put the same thought into a a more common expression. And we do use the phrase when pigs fly. Right. So a dynamic equivalence would be when pigs fly. The paraphrase might be fat chance or that'll never happen. Okay, because that's what it means. Chicken aren't ever going to have teeth, so this ain't ever going to happen. But 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 see what happened there. See, See the problem with that. Think through the progression there. What did the original text actually say? Nothing about pigs, right? So the further away you move from a formal equivalence translation, the further away you likely move from any idea of what the original text actually contained. And so the tension in translation work then ends up being this tension between accuracy and readability. Accurately reflecting and preserving what. What the original author actually said versus putting that into the language the reader will actually understand. And there's those two schools of thought right now kind of, you know, at work in all of the translating uh, that's going on. That's why we, I think, continue to have this proliferation and this action, reaction going back and forth. Here's another illustration uh, Job 1 6. Almost all the, the, Major translations, King James, New King James, New American Standard, ESV, Holman, all read almost exactly the same on this verse. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the NIV, not to pick on the NIV, but just to illustrate the point, says, angels. Well, that's um, what's going on there? Why angels? The Hebrew phrase is b'nei Elohim, sons of God, not malakim, angels. So what have the translators done there in the IV? They've interpreted the phrase for you. Um, you know, and they didn't necessarily say, well, you know, they're not smart enough to figure that out. So let's tell them that in this context, what sons of God refers to is angels. But that's essentially what happened. So, not only have you insulted the reader, which is fine, more importantly, you have misrepresented the author, who surely knew the word for angels and could have used it if he had wanted to. And apparently he didn't. So, you have to ask, what, what's, the tra- what's the translator's primary obligation? Is it to the reader or is it to the author? And... Um, How much interpretation should a translation do? I'm of the opinion that it's the interpreter's job to interpret. It's the translator's job to translate. Which means if the meaning is confusing or ambiguous or terse or coarse or funny or whatever it is in the original language, it should stay that in the translation. And the interpreter has to figure it out not the translator, smooth it out for him. You follow me on that? Let the reader interpret the meaning of the English text just as he would have to do with the original text. That should be, I think, the goal. But there's that distinct difference of philosophy at play there. What should a translation actually do? I was watching an interview on the Golf Channel just last week that illustrates this. Uh, the commentator was it was uh, was interviewing this international golfer. I can't remember if he was Asian or Latino, but but beside him was this lady. And, uh, you know, the TV little uh, subtitle told you she was the interpreter. Which I thought, well, that's interesting. It says interpreter, not translator. And it gave her name. And then the guy asked this question, you know, what, how do you account for he had a great round that day? How do you account for your your great round today in comparison to yesterday. And and the man stood there, you could tell he was kind of nodding as if he understood the question, and then when it came time to answer, he didn't he didn't even look at the interpreter. He just said, Course conditions?
1: Course conditions.
0: And you're looking at him going, That was English, right? He just said course conditions, too. Yeah. Well then the interpreter had the audacity to interpret. What we already could understand. And she said, well, what he said was uh, the conditions yesterday were such that it was not really possible to have a good round and uh, be very aggressive. And so there were higher scores yesterday because of the weather. But today, the conditions were much better, and that enabled them to be more aggressive and, and you know resulted in lower scores. And I'm sitting there thinking, no. What he said is, course conditions, course conditions. <laughs> but, you know, I think that's that's kind of where we're at with Bible translations. And I think that's partly why, you know, what we're seeing in the proliferation of translations today is making the Bible more readable, more accessible. Uh, and It's interesting. I mean, it's not a little frightening when you start looking at the target. Audience, the target reading level for the different translations, right? Uh, that's kind of a, a scary trend when we've gone um, in the King James translation, a 12th grade reading level, to basically a 3rd grade reading level in most of the modern translations now. So that should be cause for alarm, I guess. But all that to say, some are more interpretation than translation. And granted, with any translation, there's a certain amount of interpretive work that has to go on. But I think the goal should be to represent the original as closely as possible. And I think the best translations do that. Then here's a third factor, just to muddy the water even more while I'm at it. Um, why do we have so many different translations? Because there are also two available Sources two available manuscript families, if you will, behind the different translations, um, and this is really at the heart of the King James only controversy. If you've heard of that, the loyalty that some people have for the King James uh, goes back to this idea, this, this belief in the superiority of the Textus Receptus. You ever heard that term, or the majority text? And the assumption there is that the majority reading is the preferred reading. And that's why we talked last time about transmission, textual criticism, and this whole process of evaluating the variant readings and how um, the older reading is to be preferred There's a reason why the majority text is the majority text. And that is because when Constantine legalized Christianity in the fourth century, he commissioned that New Testament manuscripts be copied up until that time. They were burning everyone they could find. now he comes along and says, no, let's let's mass produce these. But that generated an abundance of one particular text type or or family. Namely, the Byzantine text type from that geographical center. Well, there were other geographical centers like Alexandria, Caesarea, where New Testament manuscripts were also being preserved and copied. And and so text families began to emerge. Okay, And over time, you could even identify where a particular manuscript was from based on the similarities with its geographical family. And so eventually they could even classify the New Testament manuscripts into three or four regional uh, families or text types. And maybe you've heard of them, the Alexandrian, the Byzantine, the Caesarean, the Western and so on. But the textus receptus, okay, the Greek text from which. The New Testament of the King James and New King James comes was translated, basically came from the Byzantine uh, text family only. Whereas all our other modern translations come come from a more eclectic, wider base than that. Okay, where we don't favor any one particular text type, but look at all the different, uh, all the all the manuscript evidence. That's available. And so that becomes sort of the difference between the King James, New King James and maybe all the other modern translations. Um, Dan Wallace gives this fitting summary just to keep all that in perspective here, not to blow your mind on that. But he says, except for the new King James version, virtually all modern translations are following the most ancient manuscripts. So the textual basis, though different in a few particulars, is largely the same. And even here, no cardinal doctrine is at stake in any of these textual differences. God has preserved his word in such a way that a person could get saved reading the King James Tyndale, Bishops, RSV, NIV, REB, anything else. So I think we, we want to be uh, sensitive to that and 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 uh, concede that. Uh, in other words, if somebody has a sentimental preference for the King James and a bunch of you raise your hand on that one or the new King James, that's fine. Just understand that that the King James only controversy has more to do with the text than the translation. You may be in love with the translation. That's fine. But it's really the textual basis behind it that's uh, that's debated, that, that's at issue. It's one thing to appreciate the elegance, the meter of the old King James English. It's quite another to insist that one set of manuscripts is superior to all the others, particularly when some of the others are actually older Manuscripts. So, if you haven't figured it out uh, around here, we're not King James only, although we're certainly King James friendly. In fact, to quote uh, Dan Wallace again, he says this, and this maybe is a good analogy. Uh, As for English translations, there are three different flavors. All right. So, if you don't, <laughs> if you don't hear anything else I've heard. Remember ice cream, okay? Um, three different flavors of English Bible translations. Accurate, readable, elegant. And he would say each each Christian should own at least one of each. Uh, What would that be? Well, elegant. You know, I think we put the King James in there. Um, Accurate. We're talking the more literal translations. New American Standard, ESV and so on more readable, NIV, um, you know, might be uncomfortable going too much further out than that, but uh, to read a paraphrase every now and then is not going uh, to deprive you of your uh, eternal security, I don't think. But just to realize that, that we do have this luxury, right? We have multiple translations, and and we should take full advantage of that and use them, Um Because let's face it, if you want to be a purist, then we should all go back and learn Hebrew and Greek and just read the Bible in the original languages, right? And we could do that. And some people would say that's what we ought to do. Uh, That certainly is a huge part of how we do church and why we do church the way we do, where we read the scripture. And we translate to give the sense of the meaning and then we explain and apply it. Where do we get that from? Well, we get that all the way back from Moses and Nehemiah and Ezra and the synagogue where you read the scripture, you translated because people didn't speak that anymore and you explained it to them so they would know what God's word says and they could do it. So if we wanted to be purists, we could insist that you all learn Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek since that's not realistic The best approach is to read and study and compare different translations. Understanding that, as one Jewish poet said, reading the Bible in translation is like kissing your bride through a veil. To which I would say kissing through the veil is better than no kissing at all, right? So that's kind of where we're at. And that, frankly, is why we, we we all have this. We all have this stack somewhere in our house of all these uh, English Bibles. What we don't want is this. Bibles collecting dust by neglect. So whatever translation you have, may I say to you, read it, read it. Second Timothy 2.15, the old King James, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And then I think we do well also to consider that according to Wycliffe, who got this whole thing started, the Wycliffe translators, Uh, have estimated 7,000 languages in use today. Only about 500 have a complete Bible. More than 1,300 have access to the New Testament or some portion of Scripture. More than 2,300 languages in 131 countries have active translation and linguistic work going on right now, leaving, you do the math, what is left? 2,900 languages that still need a Bible translation project to begin. So 1.3 billion people without a complete Bible. So we can get really picky and particular about the plethora of English translations that are out there and which ones are best and what makes a good translation. Meanwhile... 2,900 languages, 1.3 billion people don't even have a bad translation. So to whom much is given, much is required. We want to be good stewards of what we have, right? The abundant resources that God has lavished upon us in the English speaking world. We also need to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers recognizing that uh, when you begin to pray that he may intend to send you but that's the work that uh, remains to be done and and I think that's a good balance for us to, to appreciate the resources that we have and be thankful for them and use them to the maximum degree that we can and also this tension of there's still a bunch of people around the world who don't have a scrap of scripture that they can read. What part in, uh, in the Lord's plan are we to be a part of there? So let's pray. Father, uh, we are thankful. We, we, we have so many resources, so, so much at our fingertips. And we are grateful and we don't want to take it for granted. Uh, there's no excuse for not knowing the Bible, for not knowing the gospel, for not knowing you. Make us good stewards of these treasures. And if it would please you, raise up from among us scholars, teachers, translators, trailblazers. But cause each of us to be diligent students of your word, to love it, to, to treasure it in our hearts, to, to walk in obedience to it. To grow in our knowledge of you through it. And then, Father, to proclaim it faithfully as far and wide as you would allow until Jesus comes. We pray it in his name and for his sake. Amen.